Good morning to you all on this beautiful, muggy, cool spring day. This morning we're continuing our co-workers in God's service theme, or today I guess co-walkers in God's service. We've been in this theme since the week after Easter when we learned about St. Thecla, a persistent early female evangelist. And then the following week, Kent preached about Dom Helder Camara and his devotion to helping enact God's preferential option for the poor. We then learned from Anna about Wangari Mathai and her seemingly small act of protest that had broad environmental implications. And then last week, we welcomed Reverend Mary Day Miller from the American Baptist Churches of Massachusetts, and she taught us about John Leland, who's one of our Baptist foreparents and who staunchly advocated for religious freedom to be codified in our Constitution. Today, at the risk of tempting New England weather to revert back to our winter temperatures, I want to explore the story of St. Nicholas, the inspiration for Santa Claus. I know it's not Christmas, but just bear with me. St. Nicholas was the Bishop of Myra in what is now Turkey, but which at the time was a region steeped in Greek culture and outlook, though it was politically a part of the Roman Empire. We don't know a ton about the historical Nicholas, but we do know that he was born into a wealthy Christian family. He was orphaned when his parents both succumbed to an epidemic, and he was subsequently raised by an uncle who was an abbot at a local monastery. Much like Dom Helder Camara and Wangari Mathai, Nicholas was a very, he was very religious, even as a youth. He observed the traditional Orthodox fasts of Wednesdays and Fridays. He was ordained as a priest and eventually became bishop. And he was even attendee at the Council of Nicaea and a signatory of the Nicene Creed. And there is a story that says that he got in such an intense theological fight that he punched one of his colleagues because he didn't like what he had to say about God. There are many wonderful stories attributed to St. Nicholas, both miraculous and mundane in nature. St. Nicholas's legacy of generosity has even seeped into the more secular or commercial aspects of our Christmas traditions as the Santa Claus that we know and love. But even before Santa was the Santa of Coke bottle and polar bear fame, his generosity, especially toward the needy, was central to his legacy. In the medieval era, St. Nicholas's feast day was a day when Christian nuns would make up baskets of food and clothing to anonymously deliver to the hungry and to the poor. One story that from Nicholas's life that you may recognize some familiar, some familiar elements in, it goes like this. There was a man with three daughters, too poor to afford a dowry, And this meant they had little prospects for getting married because, well, what's a woman worth if she doesn't come with some gold and a few heads of cattle, am I right? And if they weren't married, well, then they'd have to become prostitutes because at least, well, everyone would assume them to be prostitutes because what other options were there for an unmarried woman who hadn't vowed celibacy? So Nicholas, under the cover of darkness, he delivers a bag of gold to the oldest daughter, He tosses it up, over, and down through the chimney, where it lands in a stocking that the daughter was drying by the fire. 
She soon, now having a dowry, she soon gets married, and Nicholas repeats the gift for each subsequent daughter each subsequent year. Interestingly enough, in some versions of this story, the father of all the daughters, he's determined to find out who this anonymous benefactor is, and he waits at the window until he catches Nicholas in the act of generosity. Now, Nicholas, preferring to remain anonymous, he pleads with the man, don't, don't thank me, thank God. The cat's out of the bag now on St. Nicholas's gift-giving, and we are memorializing this story of simple, undiluted generosity whenever we hang our stockings by the fireplace and await their filling by the one and only Santa Claus. As I learned while researching good old St. Nick, in order to qualify for sainthood, the candidate must have performed some sort of miracle. Now, there are many miracles attributed to St. Nicholas, but perhaps the two most famous both stem from a story of famine, a story of scarcity. One is a Sweeney Todd-esque warning of the perils of a scarcity mindset. It's a warning of the sin that it can tempt us into. And the second story is a joyful celebration of what can happen when we adopt an outlook of abundance. So Bishop Nicholas, he was traveling to a village struck by famine to help tend to the hungry and to the sick. Now with famine, as you can imagine, comes poverty as farmers, bakers, butchers, restaurant owners, innkeepers, they all lose their livelihoods, having nothing to sell and no customers to buy from them. Malnourishment weakens the immune system and thus the workforce and desolation ensues. So one butcher, pressed for business, is said to have lured three children to his shop chopped them into pieces, and sealed them in barrels of salt to cure, intending to pass them off as ham to unsuspecting customers needing a cheap meal. St. Nicholas, having none of this Sweeney Todd claptrap, prayed and prayed and brought the children back to life. The other, more joyful, less gruesome miracle attributed to St. Nicholas is an example of how Opening our eyes to the bounty around us, how adopting an outlook of abundance is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The story is also set during famine, and some merchants, they're, they're traveling on to deliver a shipment of grain to Alexandria, and they, they stop in Myra, and St. Nicholas pleads with them to give him some of their grain, to give some of their shipment to this starving, suffering city. And they explain that all of their cargo is already weighed and measured, and they have to account for every last gram of it upon delivery. Nicholas persisted, and he promised them that everything would work out if they could just donate some of their grain. Not the whole shipment, just some of it. And they relented, they trusted him, and they gave a hundred bushels of grain from each ship. You can probably guess where this is going. When they arrive in Alexandria, they were astonished and grateful to discover that Nicholas's assurance had been accurate. The grain they delivered was exactly the same amount that had been loaded on board when they first set off on their journey. Meanwhile, the grain that they donated to the people of Myra was enough to last the city for two years. 
It saw them through to the end of the famine, and there was enough left over to provide seed for a good, full harvest. So what I want to highlight in the first story, the gruesome one about the pickled children, is the way that, as Yoda might say, because it was just, may may the fourth be with you, um, scarcity leads to selfishness, selfishness leads to apathy, and apathy leads away from God. When we're caught up in an outlook that only sees scarcity, when we believe that there isn't enough to go around, we start hoarding. We care less about the struggles or the well-being of our neighbors. We see the world as dog-eat-dog. We find scarcity indeed. And on the other hand, in the second story of the miraculous grain replenishment, St. Nicholas showed them that when we open ourselves up to radical generosity, when we allow ourselves to trust that there is enough to go around, we find that there is enough to go around. There exists enough food in the world to feed all the hungry people in the world. We know this for a fact. Hunger and malnourishment aren't random. There are systems of oppression at play. There's a prioritization of corporate profit at play. There's a gullibility on our part to accept the party line that, no, a grocery store can't give away its unsold food because they could get into legal trouble. When, in fact, the Good Samaritan Food Donation Act that Congress passed in 1996 shields good-faith food donors from legal liability. And it doesn't just apply to individuals or to nonprofits. It applies to corporations, wholesalers, caterers, farmers, restaurateurs, and a whole host of others. There's really no excuse not to share surplus food. When we sit down and crunch our budgets, trying to give each dollar a job, it's so easy to think that we can't afford to trim the grocery budget anymore, or we can't shave a few dollars off of the entertainment allotment or the gas budget. We're already maxed out on our giving, we think to ourselves. But is that really the case? Are we really maxed out? Is there such a thing as being maxed out on your giving? I'll tell you just one more story, and while it doesn't come from St. Nicholas's life, I think you'll see why I wanted to include it anyway. You may remember it from your own childhood. There are at least a couple children's books that retell this old folktale. A poor traveler, carrying nothing but an empty cooking pot, came upon a village and was looking for food. Hello? He would knock on their doors. I'm weary from traveling and very hungry. Do you care? Will you share? Do you have any food? But none of the village people had anything to offer him. I'm sorry, one person apologized. I just don't have enough food to spare. Things are tight enough as it is. I'm taking care of my sick grandfather, another explained, and I have to save all the food that I can for him. I already gave some food to a pilgrim last week. I have none left to spare, a third villager told him. So the traveler stopped and set up camp by the riverside, filled up his pot, and started a fire. A villager saw the billowing steam rising from the pot and asked him, What are you cooking? The traveler replied, Stone soup. 
It's the most delicious soup in the whole wide world, and all I need is this magic stone. And he pulls out a stone about the size of his fist from his pocket, plunks it in the water. Soup from a stone? The villager asked him. Yep. All I need is this stone, and in a few hours I'll have a soup fit for a king. Though I suppose it would cook a little faster if I had an onion. Oh, well, I think I have an onion, said the villager. I'll go get it. And he went off, returning after a while with an onion and another villager. He's making soup from a magic stone, he told his friend, dropping the onion into the pot. Soup from a stone, his friend asked. Yep, it's a magic stone. Wow, it smells good. Sure does. Though I suppose it would smell even better if I had a carrot. Oh, I have a carrot, the friend replied, and off she went. She returned with her neighbors, an elderly couple. He's making stone soup, she told them, dropping the carrot into the boiling pot. Soup from a stone, they asked. Yep, the villager said. Have a taste. Oh, well, that's really nice. It is. Though I suppose it would taste even better if I had some beef bones. Oh, well, we have some beef bones, don't we, dear? And off they went. More and more of the villagers came to see this magic stone soup. And soon it had potatoes and seasonings and meat scraps and beans and salt and pepper. My friends, the traveler called out to the assembled crowd when it was ready. It's been a tough year. You've all been working so hard trying to tend your farms, to feed your families, to tend to your sick. And with the help of my magic stone, you all found a little extra room to keep giving. I can't possibly eat all this soup by myself. Will you please help me finish it? And they gathered together to share the feast. It's stories like that that help me find the truth in Jesus' miracle of the loaves and the fishes, in St. Nicholas's miracle of the shipment of grain. Perhaps the miracle is how, when we loosen ourselves from the grip of the anxiety of scarcity, the veil is lifted and God's true abundance is revealed. I wonder if we think of gifts as expressions of our Christian love, when we see the truth that the more we give or the more we share, we find that that the more we have in the end. Maybe the miracle is that there is always, always enough love to go around. Amen. Amen.